Welcome back to the first episode of the last unit of World History Class with Mr. Lutz. And we're here today to talk about World War I. And I think that this episode may surprise some of you because what you're going to come to see with it is we're going to kind of de-emphasize the fighting of the war itself because in the true vein of the intention behind this podcast that is trying to tie in what you're reading with the key concepts, in other words, what you need to know, you're going to see that very little of the actual key concepts relates to the fighting itself. So we're going to be really talking more about the sources of conflict. We'll be moving into the mobilization for war, talk a little bit about the concept of total war, both on the battlefront and the home front. Uh, We'll then move on, discuss some of the, the problems this war causes for some empires that were already fragile before the war started, and we'll discuss the peace process before touching on the effects of this war around the world and discussing the 1918 flu pandemic. So, decent bit to get to, but uh, before I start crying at the fact that we're winding down this podcast this year, we better get started. So, let's begin. So Archduke Franz Ferdinand, as we know, I'm sure by this point, was assassinated by Gavrilo Princip on June 28, 1914, in the town of Sarajevo. So Franz Ferdinand was all set to be the successor to the Austro-Hungarian throne, which at that time was occupied by the Emperor Franz Joseph. Princip, his assassin, was a member of the terrorist organization called the Black Hand, and they were agitating for the region of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which Sarajevo had served as its capital to secede from Austria-Hungary and then become part of Serbia, as many people living in that region had defined as Serbs. However, we have to understand there were Croats and Bosnians living in this area as well. So the Black Hand and Gavrilo Princip decided that June 28th was the day for the Archduke to die, and it would hopefully force the hands of the Austrians to let go of Bosnia-Herzegovina rather than deal with these forms of terrorist attacks. However, this event in the Balkans would eventually drag the major military powers of the world into a war due to competing rivalries and interests, as well as the complex entanglement of alliances that had strung them together. This would be the start of the most engrossing war in world history up to that point in time. So let's take some time to take a step back away from what I call this spark event that begins the war, and let's address the underlying issues that were brought forth to cause such destruction on a global scale. So often when we talk about the causes of World War I, you'll often hear the acronym MAIN, M-A-I-N, thrown around. And I think it's an adequate term for what led to the beginning of the war. So what we're going to do is just break that down. So beginning with M, we have militarism. So Britain's decline at the expense of rapid German growth was evident both in the industrial output between the two nations and in the increasingly tense buildup of the two nations' military capabilities. The British Navy had been the dominant force in the seas since the 16th century, and the Germans began to prioritize naval expansion so as to be able to secure not only trade routes spanning the world's oceans, but also protecting their borders via the water in times of war. 
The German army was also the largest in the world at this time, but they were becoming increasingly concerned with the growing size of Russia's army. So these militaristic tensions bubbled underneath the surface and kept the major powers of Europe on an edge and seeking out defensive alliances to ensure their safety. So that brings us to A being alliances. Now by 1914, Europe had basically split itself into two groups thanks to the emergence of two rival alliances. The Triple Alliance, or the Central Powers, that's Germany, Austria-Hungary, and initially Italy, but it's later replaced by the Ottoman Empire. We'll call them pretty much the Central Powers from this point forward. And the Triple Entente, which had started out between Great Britain, France, and Russia, who you're going to hear me often refer to as the Allies. So the Triple Alliance had initially come as a result of our German fears regarding the French and Austro-Hungarian concerns about Russian interference with their presence in the Balkans. Italy had initially joined to address their concerns about the French as well, but their meddling in the Balkans had damaged the relationship because Germany had been working to form a good relationship with the Ottomans. So they're going to be removed from the picture. So we'll be talking about Germany, Austria-Hungary, later on the Ottomans coming into the fray. On the other hand, France's desire to enter into the Triple Entente was driven by the desire to avoid a repeat of 1871, which was when the Germans had dealt the French a disastrous defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. Russia had also been concerned by Germany's growth, and coupled with the British, who desired to see the traditional balance of power maintained on the continent, there was cause enough for the three to enter into a mutually beneficial alliance. So again, we're just kind of seeing two major competing groups emerge on the continent of Europe. So that leads us next into imperialism, for I. So the imperial powers of the world had all been competing with each other for control of overseas territories, and this led to increasingly tense hostilities, especially between Germany and Britain, as well as Germany and France. Germany had arrived a bit later to imperialism than the other two, and so they had, their, they had to force their way into the conversation much more than their counterparts. Influence over the Balkans had also led to competing tensions among the European powers, especially Austria, Hungary, and Russia. So again, that imperial competition just creating enough tension underneath the surface. So for our last letter of the main causes, we come to N for nationalism. We've seen the desire for self-determination grow as we moved on into the later stages of period five. What this meant was that national communities were beginning to unite over the common desire to see their nation gain the ability to govern itself and be in command of its own destiny. During period five, this resulted in the unification and independence movements in Belgium, Italy, and Germany. And as nationalism grew in popularity during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, more and more nations of people began to rally around the dream of self-determination. So what made self-determination a problem was the inherent fact that if one group gains independence, then it is at the expense of most likely an empire losing former territory. We had seen the Ottoman Empire gradually lose more and more territory to the independence movements in Greece, Serbia, Romania, and Bulgaria. Now Austria-Hungary is forced to deal with growing nationalism in its empire as its Serbs are pushing to be united with the new independent kingdom of Serbia. This, of course, is the reason behind Gavrilo Princip's shooting of the Archduke. So we know the spark that kind of lights this fire of war is the assassination of the Archduke, and we know the fuel that provided the, the source of energy for this fire, so to speak, are those main causes that I've just addressed. 
But let's talk mobilization now. And what I mean by that is the Archduke gets killed. How do we see within a month or so all the major powers of Europe at war? Okay, so the assassination of the Archduke is going to set forth this mechanism of war that once it's switched on, no individual nation is going to be able to turn it back. Austria-Hungary was bent on teaching the Serbs a lesson. So they're going to send forth an ultimatum that is intentionally completely unreasonable for the Serbs to agree to. And so the Serbs find themselves in a position where they could not agree to all the demands set forth by Austria-Hungary in the ultimatum. So they don't agree to all of it. So this decision puts Austria-Hungary in a position where they felt the only option was to declare war on Serbia. So now we turn to Russia. And Russia, believing that it had a duty to look out for its Slavic little brother, so to speak, in Serbia, began a plan that saw its army mobilized against Austria-Hungary, but also mobilizing against Austria-Hungary's ally of Germany. Because the Russians wanted to put themselves in a position where they could be successful were the Germans also to mobilize for war. So you see these armies in Europe are so massive and had been preparing for the possibility of war for so long that explicit plans had been drawn up for quite some time in regards to what would happen were war to break out on the continent. Large decisions needed to be made quickly because the consequences of indecision were too grave to allow for any hesitation. So fittingly, the Germans found themselves in a situation where they had to make bold decisions quickly as well, as now the Russians had begun to mobilize their forces against them. Germany thus turned to its Schlieffen plan that had been lying in wait for nearly a decade for just this moment in time. Now, the Schlieffen plan understood that if war were to break out against Russia or France, that would mean Germany would potentially be encircled due to the alliance between the two nations. Thus, it was absolutely essential for the Germans, as quickly as they could, according to the Schlieffen plan, to launch a quick and devastating attack on the French, knocking them out of the war, and then turning their attention to the east and towards the slower to mobilize Russians, where they could now place all of their energies. The Schlieffen plan, once set in motion, could not simply be shut down as it involved a strict timetable that saw millions of soldiers, as well as all of the supplies that equipped them, mobilized on a scale that was never before seen in human history. It also had required the Germans to sweep through Belgium in a maneuver that was to surprise the French in the northwestern part of their country, as opposed to the Germans entering in through the shared border between Germany and France further to the south. But the problem with moving through Belgium was that Belgium was a neutral nation whose sovereignty had been guaranteed by the British. And once the Germans had set foot in Belgian territory, Britain felt obligated to declare war. So the stage was now fully set for what would become known in its own time as the Great War and what we now call World War I. The war would last for four years and would be characterized by frequent stalemates checked with moments of futile offensive efforts. Industrial era technologies of war, including the machine gun, barbed wire, poison gas, and other weapons forced commanders to reconsider their tactics and led to the characteristic trench warfare in no man's land that was to be commonly associated with the First World War. However, I can't spend too much time moving through the blow-by-blow battles of the war, as again, we have too much else to talk about. So trust me, in the recommendations portion of this episode, I will have a suggestion for you that would blow anything I'd have to offer completely out of the water and the planet for that matter. So the significance of this style of warfare 
is that it required a Herculean level of support from the home front. Now, we'll talk about the concept of total war shortly, but for now, I want to focus on what strategies were used to maintain a steady supply of soldiers being sent to the front lines. Propaganda was employed here at a level that had not been seen until this point in time, and it was done so to foster continual support and positivity about the war effort. Efforts are going to be made to censor reports coming back from the front in order to prevent bad news from damaging morale at home. Informational materials, including posters and pamphlets, were produced in a manner that was meant to hit the viewer at the base emotional level through appealing to the threat the enemy posed to all their society had stood for. The Germans had been portrayed as the militaristic apes and slayers of innocent Belgians by the Entente powers and tales of war atrocities on behalf of the enemy were inflated in order to generate shock and horror amongst the public, ultimately resulting in further support for the war effort. Recruits were swept up into the war effort. Younger men were emboldened with the spirit of adventurism, convinced they were fighting for the security of their nation and with the confidence that God was on their side. The Americans, later on in the war, had sailed across the Atlantic holding firm to the belief that they were fighting to secure democratic values for citizens of the world. So these firm convictions provided soldiers with the mental ammunition they needed to brave the horrors of what they would experience along the front lines of the First World War. So now we turn to total war. And by 1916, it had become clear that what was supposed to be a short war was turning into a conflict with no true end in sight. Military leadership had begun to think of alternative strategies that would help them to win the war. The Germans eventually turned their sights on the French fortress town of Verdun, where they had hoped for French forces to be deployed there in large numbers. The German plan was to shell the location beyond anything that had yet to be seen in the war, and this strategy set the tone for what became known as a war of attrition, meaning it wasn't the goal of the Germans to necessarily capture Verdun. Rather, it was the place where the Germans had hoped to literally bleed the French military dry. French deaths at Verdun amounted to 315,000, while the Germans weren't too far behind with a total of 280,000. The British diffused attention on Verdun by attempting an all-out attack on German defenses along the Somme River in France on July 1, 1916, only to witness the deadliest single day in British military history still to this day, suffering nearly 60,000 casualties and over 19,000 deaths. After four months of fighting on the Somme, the British had suffered a total of 420,000 casualties. This type of warfare required the deployment of troops to the front lines in a manner that had never been seen before. However, it must be understood that if all these troops were forced to fight on the front, then there was also a huge effort being undertaken on the home front to supply soldiers with the resources they needed to keep up this fight. Total war required all citizens whether on the battlefront or the home front, to pitch in and support the war effort in some measure. So total war required industries to turn themselves over to the necessities demanded by societies at war. The elements of capitalist society that we've seen for some time in this class were now cast aside as centralized economic planning developed, of course, at the direction of the government, dictated what was to be produced, how much people were to be paid, how much certain goods were to cost, and what people were expected to contribute to the war effort. The composition of the workforce had begun to change as well, as the men who had been conscripted and marched off to the front were soon being replaced by the women who had remained at home. 
women found themselves in an array of professions, with some taking over work on the farm from their husbands, other working behind the front lines as nurses or physicians, or working in munitions factories to help produce the weapons needed to sustain the war effort. As a whole, women had realized themselves to be essential in the effort to keep wartime society going, and the fight on the front lines continuing. As the war had come to an end, much of the economic relations between genders returned back to the way they had been prior to the war. However, women now took even more initiative to secure further rights, and they earned the right to vote starting in Britain in 1918, Germany in 1919, as well as Austria in 1919, and then the United States in 1920. So, now we turn to the impact of the war on a couple of different empires during this time. So the scale and the intensity that is brought about by this war really exposes the fragility of various empires, and it results in some of the most notable events in the 20th century, primarily the Armenian Genocide and the Russian Revolution. So Ottoman forces had been fearing a potential invasion of their lands for many reasons, but one of them was the fear that their enemies would incite minority groups within the Ottoman Empire to revolt against their Turkish rulers. This fear especially rung true for the Armenian Christian population of the Ottoman Empire, who had been protesting against Ottoman corruption since the late 19th century. The Ottomans had decided to double down on their emphasis on Turkish nationalism and thus turned their attention on any problematic groups that stood in the way of achieving national unity. Naturally, the Armenians were targeted, and soon enough there began a mass deportation campaign to remove Armenians from their homes. These deportations sometimes led to killings that occurred in the process of transferring people or poor conditions along the way, including food shortages, a lack of water, poor shelter, and little medical care. Government-sponsored killings also occurred against the Armenian population, and so between 1915 and 1917, it is believed that between 664,000 and 1.2 million Armenians died as a result of this genocide. So in Russia, by 1917, they had been worn down to the bone by war. Soldiers were abandoning their posts and revolting against their commanders. Supplies were running short in the front and back at home, and strikes and riots were breaking out back in Russia. When it became clear that the police and the military were neither willing nor able to put an end to the rioting, Tsar Nicholas II decided it was time to abdicate the throne. And this, of course, meant an end to the Romanov dynasty. But he would be replaced by the provisional government in what became known as the February-March Revolution. The provisional government had opened up to a freer and tolerant society, but they decided to keep Russia in the war and chose not to reform land ownership. Soon enough, the provisional government found itself competing for power in certain realms with organizations of workers and soldiers that were known as Soviets. So it's during this time that Vladimir Lenin had entered the political fray in Russia. Thanks to support from the Germans, Lenin was able to sneak back into Russia after living in political exile in Switzerland. The Germans were more than happy to ship Lenin back because they knew his revolutionary rhetoric had the ability to destabilize Russia. And if Russia could be destabilized at home, then it could result in their withdrawal from the war. Soon enough, the Germans would get exactly what they wanted. Lenin called for a socialist revolution that would be led by his Bolshevik party. His party was able to gain control of the Soviet in Petrograd, which is what we would commonly have called St. Petersburg, but it's renamed to Petrograd due to its old German-sounding name. So, the Soviets take control of Petrograd. And this is thanks in part to their slogan of peace, land, and bread, 
By peace, we mean getting Russia out of the war. By land, we mean redistributing land to Russia's peasantry. And by bread, we mean, of course, feeding the people who have had to sacrifice basic necessities to help in the war effort. So in the October-November Revolution of 1917, the Bolsheviks stormed the Winter Palace in Petrograd and seized power from the provisional government. The seizure of power by the Bolsheviks was a transformative moment in the war. Almost immediately, the Russians signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which turned much of Russia's contested territory over to the Germans, and it got the Russians out of the war. This was necessary because soon enough, Russia was to have a civil war on its hands. So, as we enter 1917, we start to see the beginning of the war start to appear. And although, of course, 1917 witnesses Russian withdrawal from the war effort, it also sees the entry of the United States into the fray. So America had initially adopted a stance of neutrality at the beginning of the war, but it was heavily involved in providing supplies to the Allied powers. So much Allied debt had accrued that it became in the best interest of the United States to see an Allied victory in the war. However, it was the German decision to resume unrestricted submarine warfare in February of 1917 that helped America make its decision to enter the war. American ships were supposed to be able to travel unimpeded across the Atlantic, but in 1915, a British passenger ship called the Lusitania was carrying 128 American citizens on board when it was torpedoed by Germans. The Germans attacked ships like these because they were being used to supply the British and were thus considered fair game in the rules of war, not to mention that British ships had been cutting Germany off from receiving overseas supplies. The Lusitania had been carrying several thousand cases of ammunition for the Allied war effort. This event had led to the Germans putting a halt on targeting passenger liners, but by 1917, they ended this embargo and unrestricted submarine warfare resumed. The American public was outraged. And it was in the same year that the Zimmerman note was intercepted. This note, sent by the Foreign Secretary of Germany to their ambassador to Mexico, talked of a proposal that was to be made by the ambassador of Mexico. The plan called for Mexico to join the Central Powers if the U.S. were to enter the war. And Mexico was to be given American territory for their service if the Central Powers were to emerge victorious. By April 6, 1917, America was at war against the Central Powers on the side of the Allies. By this point in the war, all of those nations who had been engaged in the conflict since 1914 were beginning to wither, and the Germans used this moment to launch a massive offensive in early 1918. The offensive failed, and it led to a counterattack by the Allies, which broke German lines. Soon enough, an armistice was signed between the belligerent nations and went into effect on November 11th at 11 a.m. The Allied powers had emerged the victors, and the Central Powers the defeated. Though at that point, not considering the celebrations, it would have been hard to tell the difference. Paris in 1919 was to serve as the setting for the peace conference that was hoped to make the Great War the war to end all wars. However, it was to provide the pretext for innumerable conflicts across the world for the remainder of the 20th century, and in some cases, beyond. But by early 1918, President Wilson had already been drawing up his list of proposals that he hoped would be a framework on which an enduring peace could be built. We're going to spend more time talking about Woodrow Wilson's 14 points in our complicating the narrative section, but in this part, I wanted to focus on two ideas, Uh, the first one being his thoughts regarding Germany, where in his 14 points, Wilson said, quote, we have no jealousy of German greatness, and there's nothing in this program that impairs it. We grudge her no achievement or distinction of learning or of Pacific enterprise, such as have made her record very bright and very enviable. We do not wish to injure her or to block her in any way, her legitimate influence or power. 
We do not wish to fight her either with arms or with hostile arrangements or trade if she is willing to associate herself with us and the other peace-loving nations of the world in covenants of justice and law and fair dealing. We wish her only to accept a place of equality among the peoples of the world, the new world in which we live, instead of a place of mastery, end quote. So you can see from that that Wilson does not want to see Germany especially punished. However, his sentiments were not shared by his two counterparts, George Clemenceau of France and David Lloyd George of Great Britain. Both of these men wanted Germany to be punished to the full extent of possibility, and the Treaty of Versailles saw to this. Germany was to no longer have an air force or navy. Their army was to be restricted to 100,000 men. The central powers were to pay reparations to the Allied powers for the cost of war. Germany's border territory with France, known as the Rhineland, was forbidden from German military occupation. All German colonies were lost. 13% of German territory on the European continent was lost, as was 10% of its total population. Oh, and the war guilt clause laid the blame of the war squarely on the shoulders of Germany. These laundry lists of humiliating terms would not be something that Germany nor the world would soon forget. And the second point I wanted to focus on of Wilson's here was his final point of the 14 points, which stated, quote, a general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial, territorial integrity to great and small states alike, end quote. So this proposal resulted in the development of the League of Nations. So the purpose of this league was to create an international organization that was dedicated solely to the mission of preserving global peace. Over 40 members from around the world joined in the league, but it was destined to fail from the start because the nation that had proposed it, the United States of America, refused to join because its Senate, in the pursuit of avoiding foreign entanglements, decided to maintain an isolationist stance in the ensuing decades. The other problem was that the major power brokers around the world, including the Soviet Union, Japan, Italy, and Germany, had refused to join the League or withdrew their membership when the League condemned the actions being taken, as in the case of Japan and Italy. There's lots more to be said about the post-war agreements, and we'll get to them when we address Wilson's 14 points in our next section for Complicating the Narrative. So for our Complicating the Narrative section today, I wanted to focus on a book written by Erez Manella called The Wilsonian Moment. And this book essentially focuses on the effects of the fifth point of the 14 points, which stated, quote, a free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable claims of the government whose title is to be determined, end quote. Basically saying, we're going to readjust colonial claims and the people who were colonized should have just as much of a say as the people who were doing the colonizing. Manila argues that nationalists of Egypt, India, China, and Korea all saw this Wilsonian rhetoric of self-determination as their opportunity to push for independence. Their subsequent anti-colonial, anti-imperial uprisings weren't these coincidental or isolated incidents. He instead suggests it's a broad reaction of frustration to the unfavorable outcomes of the Paris Peace Conference. And up until this point in time, Woodrow Wilson had seemed to be the voice for the oppressed of the world, while Vladimir Lenin 
didn't enjoy as much popularity with those people that he claimed to be the champion of. So what Manella comes to argue is that Wilson's fifth point was never intended to be read by a non-Western audience, and that this desire, even if it was intended for non-Europeans, would have been detrimental for the status of colonial empires, especially those of Britain and France. The Egyptians, Indians, Chinese, and Koreans all believed that self-determination was an option worth struggling for, and they desired to send their own delegates to the Paris Peace Conference. Many of these places had desired independence, but now they felt like they had an ally in Wilson who could perhaps not only deliver on this, but could also set them on equal footing with the other nations of the world through the creation of the League of Nations. Remember, the 14th point called for giving independence and integrity to small and great nations alike. So all these nations, though, were to be disappointed by the outcomes of the Paris Peace Conference. The Egyptians were told that self-determination was possible, but it needed to be granted at a reasonable and peaceful speed. The Indians were told that independence could potentially be discussed at a later date by the League of Nations. However, when British forces massacred peaceful protesters in what became known as the Amritsar Massacre, all hope for independence were dashed, and the Indians began to adopt non-cooperation with the British as their strategy to break free. China saw the unequal treaties of the 19th century continue on, while the Japanese are granted the Shandong Peninsula, which had been the Germ former German sphere of influence in China. The Chinese, now disillusioned with Western liberal democracy, broke out in mass demonstrations in what became known as the May 4th Movement which rejected Western values and promoted Chinese nationalism more than ever. Future leader of communist China, Mao Zedong, had followed the Paris Peace Conference closely, and when he learned of the results, he became more interested in the Bolshevist plan to ending imperialism in China. Korea was also to realize that its hopes for independence were dashed by the Paris Peace Conference. And all of these results bear striking similarities to what we see with the mandate system that emerges in the former territories of the Ottoman Empire. Arabs there had been told during the war that if they supported the Allied effort, they would be granted independence at the conclusion of the war. And the Jewish movement for a new homeland called Zionism had been promised a homeland in Palestine. However, according to a wartime secret pact known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was an agreement between the British and French, it was agreed to divide Arab territories between those two powers. So using the League of Nations, the British and French were able to create what was called the Mandate System. And the system was stated to serve as one where European nations were able to help administer former colonies and territories of the central empires because they argued the people there were not ready for self-government. Arabs, of course, were outraged by this system that was used as the justification to support the lie they had been told of achieving independence. These new mandates that were formed also grouped different religious and ethnic groups together and created tensions that would continue to shape the region for the next 100 years. So this episode's documented focus is going to be on the topic of the 1918 flu pandemic. As the Great War is winding down, the influenza pandemic of 1918 was just getting started. Though its origins are unknown, it is unquestioned that the mobility of soldiers to their home countries from the war front helped to promote the rapid spread of the virus. Strangely enough, those who are typically the most secured from the flu, that is the younger and active population, were the hardest hit. 
the pandemic led to the deaths of more people than what resulted from the war, claiming approximately 50 million people around the world while infecting potentially as many as 500 million. It's not understood what made this strain of flu so extraordinarily deadly. The only way to handle such widespread illness at that time was through quarantining and isolating those who contracted the virus, emphasizing proper hygiene, and limiting events that would bring together large gatherings of people. So with that being said, I'd like to introduce you to this episode's document focus. So I have a letter here from Lucian Van Wert, who was a Native American female volunteer office worker. And she's writing a letter to a friend who was at an Indian school in Kansas. And Van Wert is writing this letter from Washington, D.C. in 1918. And she says, quote, Catherine and I just returned last Sunday evening from Camp Humphreys, somewhere in Virginia, where we helped nurse soldiers sick with the influenza. We were there at the camp for 10 days, among some of the very worst cases, and yet we did not contract it. We had intended staying much longer than we did, but the work was entirely too hard for us. We worked from 7 in the morning till 7 at night, with only a short time for luncheon and dinner. Our chief duties were to give medicines to the patients, take temperatures, fix ice packs, feed them at eating time, rub their back or chest with camphorated sweet oil, make eggnogs, and a whole string of other things that I can't even begin to name. Male orderlies carried the dead soldiers out on stretchers at the rate of two every three hours. Repeated calls had come from the Red Cross to do volunteer work right here in D.C. I volunteered again, but as yet I have not been called and am waiting. They are certainly desperate for nurses. Even me can volunteer as a nurse in a camp or in Washington. All the schools, churches, theaters, dancing halls, etc. are closed here also. There is a bill today in the Senate authorizing all the wartime government workers to stay home for the duration of the epidemic. It has not passed the House of Representatives yet, but I can't help but hope it does. End quote. So I wanted to focus on the author's point of view here because their perspective certainly influences how they perceive the events. So if you recall, what I had said about her is that she was a Native American female volunteer office worker. And the first paragraph speaks of the tremendous amount of work that's involved in caring for the sick and the deceased, the Camp Humphreys. But the second paragraph is really what I want to focus on. Van Wert talks of requests for volunteer nurses from the Red Cross in Washington, D.C., and she states, quote, They're certainly desperate for nurses. Even me can volunteer as a nurse in a camp or in Washington. End quote. What's underlined from that excerpt are the words, even me. And this is important because she's stressing that even Native American women are being accepted as volunteer nurses to aid the troops sickened by the Spanish flu. So I did a little bit of research on this matter to find out that it, to figure out if it was unusual for Native American women to serve as nurses for the Red Cross. And it turns out it was pretty rare. I found that 14 Native American women served in Europe as nurses. And seemingly, those women who served were highly qualified for the positions and could not have just volunteered if they had lacked experience. So Van Wert is indicating here that the status of Native women seems to be changing, albeit perhaps in a small way, as a result of the crisis brought about by the influenza pandemic. World War I was a turning point in world history for many reasons, and we will see its effects throughout the remainder of period six. All right, I can't resist. I've got two recommendations here for you in this particular episode because I am 
fascinated by World War One, uh, especially considering that we're just kind of winding up, or I guess winding down uh, the 100th year anniversary of the war. There's been a lot of stuff that's come out recently. The first thing I want to recommend is a much longer, much more enthralling, much more incredible podcast called Hardcore History, but the specific series title that you'd want to listen to there is called Blueprint for Armageddon. And the episodes are literally hours long, but it kind of tells the story as if it is an audiobook that you are listening to. And the guy who produces it is uh, named Dan Carlin, and he does a fantastic job of researching and really just getting down to the nitty gritty of what these battles must have been like. And as, as far as your ears can take you along that experience of what this war must have been like, Dan Carlin does a fantastic job and I can't recommend it highly enough. The other recommendation I have is, quite honestly, for myself as well. Um, just this past year in 2018 and then in early 2019, there was a movie that was made called They Shall Not Grow Old, which was produced and directed by Peter Jackson, who had done the Lord of the Rings movies. And what he did is he took that old, grainy, kind of broken up black and white footage from World War I and he colorized it and basically repaired it. That's that's my technical term there for you, to a way that makes it flow and just for us in the 21st century, just makes it come alive in a way that we have never seen before. Uh, I'll post a link in the blog to a preview of They Shall Not Grow Old. Certainly check that out. It's like two minutes. It was just out in theater. So at this point in 2019, it'll be out pretty soon, I'm sure online streaming somewhere. So again, check that out. Check out Blueprint for Armageddon from Hardcore History. Really, really worth it. Really good stuff. That's it for now. I will talk to you all soon. Winding down here, folks. Winding down. Take care, everybody.